Hi, this is Joseph from Cape Cod. Dustin is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. And welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted, your hey, it's that guy from Office Space, Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> hey, it's that guy who does the voice of Mr. Frond in Bob's Burgers. He's he's very voicey. He's a real voice actor. He he's does lots of stuff. Done a lot. We're referring, of course, to David Herman. More about him in just a little while. Only a little bit more about him, though, because let's be honest, not really his show. Not really. And he's not really the guest star to whom we should be paying the most attention. Mm -hmm. This is the episode that introduces Gunn. Gunn, who is going to be, you know, no spoilers, but a pretty big presence in Angel from here on out. By which you mean he's in literally every episode of Angel from now until the end of the show. That's that's what I mean. Literally every one. I I was being vague because spoilers, but okay, whatever. (laughs) This week on the show, Warzone, the 20th episode of the first season of Angel and the first of two Angel episodes that we're looking at this week. On Thursday, we'll be back with Blind Date, the Mm -hmm. 21st episode of Angel. Then next week, we wrap up with the season finales for season four of Buffy, Restless, and the first season of Angel to Shanshu in LA. Next week, we're going to have a lot to talk about. This week, not so much. (laughs) It's not that these episodes are bad. Yeah. There's just not a lot of there there. I think we get a little more there there with Blind Date, but yeah, Warzone is, is there's some good stuff in it, there's some uh, not terribly relevant stuff in it, and then it's over, and there you go. <laughs> the best synopsis a we little, could possibly a have A little Andy rooney about cell phones and whatnot, but yeah, aside we'll from that. We'll <laughs> definitely talk about cell phones, yes. Tell us a little about the writer and director of this odd and singular episode of Angel. It is odd and singular in a lot of ways. Uh, It aired on the 9th of May in the year 2000, written by a guy named Gary Campbell, who wrote exactly one episode of Angel, and this is it. But also kind of a sketch comedy writer. He's best known for his work on the Canadian sketch comedy show Kids in the Hall, sure, which is Serious Plus street cred, but a still, lot yeah, of Mad TV, a, yeah. like 150 like a episodes lot. of Mad TV. He's a sketch comedy writer. This might be his only 44 minute drama episode that he's ever written. It was the only one I saw. I didn't extensively, you know, go through every <laughs> single credit, but yeah, it was the only drama credit that I saw. Everything is comedy, not just comedy, but specifically sketch comedy. So it's not. A terribly funny episode. It's not the kind of episode that you would expect from someone with a background with in that kids in the kind hall, of pedigree. Sure, there are a couple of good lines, but I have to say, it's well written. It is well written. It's good drama. It's a tight little episode. Yeah. all the dialogue, or okay, most of the dialogue has a nice <laughs> amount of back. There, sure. there are honestly two or three lines in the episode that just don't quite cohere, mm-hmm. and that's a combination of the script and the direction and the performance, sure. certainly. But across the board. It's it's a nicely written piece of work. It is absolutely solid and kind of a surprise to come from somebody whose background is so solidly in sketch comedy. I say, you know, hats off to Gary Campbell. That is pretty fantastic, especially, too, when you consider the fact that he came in 
Like, this is it. This is one episode he did for Angel. Like, he is not mentioned. He is not heard from. This is it. Mm. So it's kind of interesting. And another person who kind of comes in and leaves, although not quite as quickly as Gary Campbell, uh, our director, David Strayton. This is his second of three. We saw him previously directing The Bachelor Party. And he is going to come back at the end of season four, episode 20 for Sacrifice. But that's it for him. Yeah. This is an odd occurrence Mm-hmm. in Angel and in Buffy because usually you know the directors who have a visual style in Angel and Buffy sure. generally demonstrate that visual style from the jump you know mm-hmm. you can recognize certain directors work through the series watching this episode made me go back and reappraise the bachelor party mm-hmm. i think that he was doing I think he was doing stuff in the bachelor party that i didn't give him credit for at the time uh-huh. i think that some of that awkwardness and some of that claustrophobia Mm -hmm. and some of that there's a weird kind of angular tension in a lot of the shots in the bachelor party and i think he was doing it all on purpose right i think that if you can't tell it's being done on purpose it's probably not being done like well enough if we don't have clarity on that maybe fair Um, that it doesn't quite fit the visual language maybe it didn't fit the visual language that's certainly true that's a fair objection to the bachelor party bachelor party when you're only a few episodes in your visual language is still very much in process but it did i think serve the story really quite well Mm -hmm. and i think that he does an outstanding job with this episode yeah he really does there's a lot of good going on here Mm -hmm. really a good team behind the behind the scenes here well considering that these are both fairly inexperienced in the world of angel these are very experienced people elsewhere but but in the world of angel you know these are kind of freshman guys uh out there running this show it it comes across really well we're going to be derailed almost immediately unless we take a moment to talk about this right up front Let's talk about J. August Richards. Okay, absolutely. I love J. August Richards. I will be the first to say, and this is not entirely spoilery, but a little bit, that that he is inconsistently written uh, throughout the run of Angel. I think we get a somewhat inconsistent gun, but there is something about this actor playing this role that I don't even care. He's, He's one of my favorite things about... Angel. I love his role in Angel. There are certain things that happen in the future that whatever, but but overall, yeah. I really just like this actor. I've seen a few comparisons online made between the character of Gunn and mm-hmm. Xander over on the Buffy side of the Buffyverse divide. Mm-hmm. And I think th- they have very little in common as characters. Right, because Gunn is not quippy. No, 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 not yeah. at all. And certainly mm-hmm. not the heart of the team either. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they do tend to fall into the same traps where... When they are a functional part of the team, when they have a job to do, they are really engaging and really enjoyable and you can't imagine the show without them. Mm -hmm. But there are long stretches when they are completely inessential to the proceedings. When the writers don't seem to know what to do with them. Yes. Yeah, and that does kind of happen. That sort of same phenomenon happens with Gunn. And that's complicated Mm -hmm. all the more for Gunn because his job is generally, at least up until, you know, the advent of season five, his job is generally... The guy who punches things he's, he's when the big Angel guy. isn't available to punch things. Well, because Angel's the hero, sure. So Gun is the big guy, which sometimes those roles can overlap a little bit with the hero. But yeah, he's he's the big guy. J. August Richards, though, charming, a great performance, so fun. I like him. He manages to bring a real warmth and interiority, and of course, there's our magic watchword, vulnerability, yes. to this performance, and I think consistently to Gun as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think that his work in general is possessed of a great, not necessarily a lightness of touch. Mm -hmm. I feel that he can really commit to 
a role and yeah. deliver a, certainly a, a, a rich and intense performance. Mm-hmm. But I do think he tends to leaven that with with vulnerability, mm-hmm. with a certain self-awareness. Oftentimes he will take a softer track than you would Yes, and you would expect necessarily from him, which is one of the things I really like about him. And that allows him to reveal Mm -hmm. great depth and complexity and strength as an actor. I'm glad to have him. I I know we don't normally jump the timeline like this, but yes, he is in every episode from here on out. He's such a huge part. It's kind of like when Wesley came in. We couldn't ignore the fact that it was Wesley. Um, And Gunn is, is going to be a big part of this team. And I like the expansion of the team. We opened up this season with Doyle and Angel and Cordelia, and it felt a little tight, a little claustrophobic sure. it needed that expansion and so we're seeing now the the main cast expand a little bit which is something that we're, we're going to do for a little while until we settle down and we're yeah. seeing that in the context of some great and confident and sophisticated world building yeah this is the moment where in a lot of ways angel's vision of los angeles mm-hmm. certainly angel's social agenda as a show Mm -hmm. comes into real focus for the first time this Mm -hmm. is the moment when it feels like we've got some of this stuff figured out we've we've layered a lot of complexity into the roles of the various players yeah and i think that that's that's really interesting necessary Mm -hmm. complexity we'll talk Mm -hmm. more about that i think at the end of the show j august richards of course wasn't going to be the only recurring member of the cast because david herman too was supposed to show up far more often than he in the end, showed up yeah. for Angel. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be a recurring character too, as David Nabbit. Mm-hmm. I think he would have been a really welcome addition, not to the yeah. main cast, perhaps, but, but to, to an, our a extended sort of universe. extended world. Sure. sure, absolutely. I actually like him quite a bit. Um, although his storyline in this episode is is a little irrelevant, but um, but I like him. I like that actor. He's very fun. Let's get to it. In a rundown part of Los Angeles, a girl walks alone at night. Three men are following her at a distance, finally cornering her between two buildings. And that's when we realize that they're vampires. But the vampires aren't the hunters here, as they turn around to see a guy with a sword. A guy who is most decidedly not Angel. Welcome to the show, Charles Gunn. (laughs) That is pretty much the greatest intro. It is You're a going fantastic a intro because we start on his feet and we see that long coat and you think, oh, here we go. It's Angel. Oh, but it is not Angel. It is Gun and it is tough and it is a fantastic way to introduce him And to, to even lampshade that with the, were you expecting someone else? Exactly. Which, when we come out of the credits and we move into the episode proper, I don't feel like Gun would ever say that. No, I but... I don't feel like that was a yeah. particularly, you know, true-to-character line, mm-hmm. but it is a great It's moment. a great introduction. Mm-hmm. We should probably, while the credits are, you know, playing in the background sure. of our imaginary beat-by-beat beat here, we should probably address the concept of the backdoor pilot. <laughs> Do you <laughs> want to frame that a little? <laughs> well, the backdoor pilot is when there is potential for a character to be spun off out of a show, and so there will be an episode that essentially, it's, it's an episode of the regular show, but it essentially functions as the spin-off pilot for the new show. We saw that, for those of you who watched The Office, during the final season, oh, yeah, there was yeah. that episode that was entirely about Dwight and his farm and had nothing to do with The <laughs> Office. That is a backdoor pilot. They tend to vary in art and artistry. Mm-hmm. The second season finale of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for a Mockingbird series mm-hmm. that they were going to go into. They decided in the end not to do that. Does anyone remember watching Gilmore Girls when Jess goes off to California for that whole interminable episode oh, because someone that thought that really was a good terrible. idea? Exactly. That was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for 
I want to Windward Circle. Was it supposed to be called Windward Circle? I do not remember. That show, the the mm-hmm. Jess related spin-off of Gilmore Girls, got surprisingly far in the planning stages. Before, before someone looked at it and cut. said, No. <laughs> this is a bad Are idea. You mad? It's just bad. Yeah, we need that guy for heroes, so we're gonna move on elsewhere, yes. Now this episode, Warzone, was never intended as a backdoor pilot for the gun character, but it is impossible to watch it and not feel like this is the intro to Gun the Show. Well, and here's the thing. First of all, a backdoor pilot that happens on the day we introduce this potential spinoff character is also a very, very weird thing. Um, So obviously that wasn't the intent. But it does feel like this show has all of this energy. It has characters. It has everything happening. All of which is somewhat, Angel is somewhat irrelevant to all of the stuff that is happening. It's a good story. It's an interesting world in which all of these kids kind of live on the street and kill vampires. That's cool. It is, but for two things. The first is that there's no way we're going to maintain this as the status quo. Sure. Mm -hmm. Angel is not an ensemble show in the sense. There are no shows in the Buffyverse that are ensemble shows in this sense. We do small teams, of Mm -hmm. course, but we don't do, you know, street gangs. Right. So that would never be a sustainable idea in the Buffyverse because it opposes, you know, central tenets of the cosmology, of the Mm -hmm. mythology of Buffy. The second is that if you strip the angel parts out of the story and you imagine this as a pilot for Gun the TV show, Mm -hmm. it's thin, it's somewhat insubstantial, and it rests entirely upon Gun's relationship with his sister, which is a beat that we've seen before Mm -hmm. in Buffy. The vampire is the... That's not your sister, that's what killed your sister. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We've been down that road and there's not enough substance to this episode for it to really work i don't think there's enough um in the background characters it's it's gun and his sister and then there's the whole team behind them sure. we don't really get to know the team very well the we only, do get a couple of characters we get the glimpse of chain his his left yeah. hand there but we don't get any sense of of real characterization but we spend a lot of time with these people mm. developing these characters even as moderately as they're developed in the space that this is supposed to be Angel's story. If it was, you know, Gunn and his sister finding a way, the two of them, you know, he's got the truck and she's doing the live bait and all this kind of stuff, and it was them working on that would be one thing. But we have this extended Gunn universe here, right. and it feels like we're spending a lot of time developing that but, for something. If And I think that's why it feels like a backdoor pilot, because there's so much development of that world and exactly. those characters without really playing it through but even within that there's an internal tension because yes Mm -hmm. while all of that world building and exposition doesn't really serve the story that we showed up to tell Mm -hmm. it is in many ways the most interesting thing about this episode Mm -hmm. because expanding our sense of what los angeles is introducing this idea of gang warfare between humans and demons that is the far end of a a pendulum swing that we've been tracking through the entire season. If you go back to the pilot of Angel and try and get a sense of how Los Angeles works, between the the relationship between human cultures and demonic cultures, Mm -hmm. the relationship between demons and, you know, oppressed human minorities within Los Angeles, you get a very different sense in the pilot and in the first half of the season than you do now. That pendulum kind of swung out. It came through the ring, for example, Mm -hmm. which is... Demons as the oppressed minority, that's something that we saw even back in Hero. We've, mm-hmm. we've kind of dealt with that issue, dealt with that metaphor. Here, we finally take it to a stable position where it's just much more complicated. Mm-hmm. The existence of the street gang, as well as addressing this idea of, of found families, discovered yes. families. Mm-hmm. 
there's some really powerful thematic and metaphorical work here that that is exposed by and in turn serves the world building. Mm -hmm. This is the first episode where Los Angeles feels like a place that works and also feels like, I guess, a little more like the real Los Angeles. It feels more like a real place that exists in the real world Mm -hmm. than it does this, you know, shadowy, chiascuro, noir sense of Los Mm -hmm. Angeles. Here we're getting something that does feel like it's addressing real contemporary culture in an interesting and, and surprisingly, I think, deft and sophisticated way. Yeah, and I think that Angel's world finally feels like it's starting to get firm. Like, we're starting to really understand how this world works. It's different from Sunnydale. It's different from the Buffy, you know, the Buffy world. Um, But we're getting that sense of of how demons are so um, kind of mixed into our our regular culture, our everyday, you know, world. And we do that in, you know, a half dozen different little subtle ways. Mm -hmm throughout this episode, things that would otherwise be completely disposable, things that are otherwise completely irrelevant. It's a weird episode because so much of it feels insubstantial or irrelevant, but I don't feel that you can lose any of that without harming what makes the episode work in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting it's a really interesting text to try and break yeah. down and analyze. Let's get into it because God knows we're only in the credits right now. <laughs> From the dirty streets, we cut to a swanky party where Cordelia is reveling in her proximity to money. They're on their way to meet David Nabbit, who is the awkward host of the shindig. He's being blackmailed over a visit to a demon brothel, Madame Dorian's. Lenny Edwards has pictures of his indelicate extracurriculars, but David doesn't know where he is. Cordelia suggests they mingle for a couple of hours to protect their cover, and David observes that there are sides to L.A. that no one ever sees, which is our cue to cut back to the alley, which has turned into a battlefield. The kids are battling the vampires, even managing to stake a few. There are losses on both sides, though the vampires quit the field first, while our scrappy gang of would-be slayers retreat to their hideout, where one of the injured men dies. Gunn sees to it that the gang eats, and we switch focus back to Angel exploring the demon brothel. He's immediately identified as a vampire by Madame Dorian, but persuades her that he needs to talk to Lena, the demon, in question. I'm going to pause there to draw breath, because this episode moves. Yeah, no, it is moving very we quickly. Do a lot of intercutting, and that's really because we're telling two stories simultaneously, <laughs> yes. and not in the typical TV show A-plot, B-plot way. Mm-hmm. We have the A-plot of Angel, the TV show, yes. and the A-plot of Gun, the TV show, and they're both competing for our time mm-hmm. and our attention. And there's something in that contrast, in the deliberate and, yes, slightly heavy-handed contrast mm-hmm. between wealth and excess and this absolute grinding desperation and and poverty there's something in that that i find enormously powerful no i think it is it's a nice contrast i feel like these that is the most you can say for connecting these two storylines and it does feel like two competing a plots you know um and while we're doing this kind of back and forth it seems like they should be working together a little bit more because thematically we do have this kind of class distinction happening there but it never it never seems to solidify for only me. for the first 10 minutes though because yeah. then we're done with the angel a plot and he moves effortlessly right. into the gun a plot and mm-hmm. and from there on at least we are telling one unified one story, story. Mm-hmm. 
What do you think of the opening beat at the party? What do you think of David as a character? What do you think of his desperate circumstance where his stockholders weirdly would be troubled if they knew he was visiting a demon brothel? Sleeping with demons. Um, We're talking here about the kinds of stockholders who would not be terrified to discover that there are demons in the world, but would be offended to discover that the CEO of their company is, is sleeping? sleeping with them. Yeah. Um, I like David Herman. And mm-hmm. I like David Nabbit as a character. This storyline is not interesting to me. Cordy's, you know, coming in with her classic, you know, I smell money. I'm all about, like, you know, the, the people at the party and, and this kind of social thing, which she's sort of been moving away from a little bit more feels a little weird to me um you know there's that line from angel where he's like yeah she can smell money sometimes i hide it in the office just to watch her it feels like they're taking her they're flattening her character a little bit when they've been working to expand her character when i said earlier that there are a handful of lines in the script that don't work yeah that's definitely one of them Mm -hmm. because that's not a joke that Angel would ever make. That's not a joke, yeah. particularly not about Cordelia. Well, and it's not something that Angel would do. Angel is so focused on brooding and saving people <laughs> that, like, playing practical jokes to see if Cordy can smell the money, it's not part of his personality. Well, and even if he doesn't literally do that, he would never make a joke it's about it It's not a joke either. that he would make. I yeah. don't like Cordelia very much in the opening movements because you're right, it feels like we've regressed a little mm-hmm. bit here. But I think we only regress in the opening movement of the episode so that we can arc her through to what is a whole new Cordelia at the end of the episode. Because when she acknowledges that she could never prostitute herself to David, David, who isn't by any means the most odious wealthy man that she's met in Los Angeles. No, he's sweet, yeah. The fact that she can't do that, the fact Mm -hmm. that she acknowledges that she can't do that, I think indicates a great deal of character progression. I do, I do. I think that it does. I don't think that we need to flatten her here in order to get her to there. Certainly not as much. Um, she's already moved to being that person. What's What she does in this episode is realize that she's no longer that person. So if she was at the party and she was like, wow, I'm just so excited. To, you know, this is like a party I've wanted to do. And she's like not as happy with it. Mm-hmm. That would be an interesting place for her to be because she would be beginning to realize that it's not the thing that would delight her as much as um as usual but we also get in this in this little you know interaction that not only um you know did she manage to finagle uh, the uh, invitation to the party to talk but she actually made him throw the party she told him to throw a party so that they could blend in which again is another thing that just feels like it feels like a detail that is is a jokey oh isn't cordelia shallow thing when we've already kind of moved past that i think you're right though next to wesley in Mm -hmm. this sequence she's positively three-dimensional oh was wesley in this scene (laughs) exactly (laughs) well he gets his nice little pushback about dungeons and dragons being a role-playing game and we must of course Mm -hmm. acknowledge that david boreanaz does very well with comedy when he's called upon to do it when it's no he's great when it's a comedy that fits his character no he does well with comedy i think that sometimes those jokes are written that are not they're not exactly angel jokes. Right. David Boreanaz is doing great. Yeah. I think you're mm-hmm. entirely right. Apart from that, we get Wesley's primary characteristic, which is he really likes eating party food. Yes. Nothing can pass by him at a party that he will not partake of. Right. It's fine. Because they don't get paid much and they're all starving. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's fine. Yeah. The hard cut from there to the, the battlefield in the alley, to the war zone, I guess right. you could say, is really quite effective Mm -hmm. though if a person 
a hypothetical theoretical viewer mm -hmm. were to feel somewhat alienated by that transition by the tonal discontinuity between what we know of you know vampires in the Buffyverse mm -hmm. and what we see here I would understand that because you have to accept in order for this episode to work at all and particularly in order for this battle scene to work you have to accept that a this street gang has managed to build a stake firing cannon and mount it on top of a car mm -hmm. and you have to accept that these vampires didn't tear through these kids these malnourished yes. you know, these malnourished street kids they didn't mm -hmm. tear through them like they were tissue paper mm -hmm. we kind of have the sliding scale of vampire competence yes. to contend with once yeah. again mm -hmm. but if you can get past that I think it works really quite well I think it works well if the story were about the haves and the have nots and the different ways in which you interact with demon culture based on your class status. I think that maybe the that that juxtaposition would have landed a little bit better. Oh. As it is, it I honestly don't feel that at all as being like a strong theme in this story. This you don't. is really no class is there. Class exists there. We don't really say anything about it and there's not much We sandwich the battle scene on the streets of Los mm -hmm. Angeles with a discussion of the demon brothel and then Angel's visit to the demon brothel. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like the show is deliberately contrasting those two sequences and not to put too fine a point on it, you either screw the demon or you get screwed by the demon. Well, sure, in the first act. Sure. But we never land that. That well, no, never because becomes we, a thing. We bail on the David storyline yeah. completely. And you're right. It's It's too prominent and substantial for it to be a side note to yes you know a more well-developed primary conflict it mm -hmm. takes up too much time for what it is right but it's too substantial to simply be ignored yeah so we get a gesture toward the direct contrast there are certainly thematic contrasts that mm -hmm. we'll get later there are i think implications that force us to confront very similar ideas later yeah. in the episode but right now in its first act mm -hmm. i think it's a fairly effective yeah, if it were to follow through on that, I think it would be. As it is, I'm bored by the party stuff. I just want to go see Gun. Okay. Yeah, I just want to hang out with Gun. That's it. I don't like the demon brothel. I don't like the tail when she's uh, playing with Angel with her tail. All of that kind of, like, I, I don't care for any of that. No, the tail isn't terribly good. Mm -hmm. Again, not really necessarily worth the time well, that it takes. funny is that here we have this, like, really experienced comedy writer and what's falling flat in this episode are the jokes well not all the jokes i think not some of the them. jokes really work quite nicely um I, I do love the dungeons and dragons joke i think that's yeah. really mm -hmm. good and rooted in character what yeah. we're doing here though is kind of yeah breaking our sense mm -hmm. of our sense of this world and because this is a new part of mm -hmm. the angel verse the fact that it feels somewhat inconsistent and insubstantial right. is more problematic than it would be if we accepted that demon brothels were on every street corner mm -hmm. in la which they may well be for all I know. <laughs> I generally like the scene because it is reminding us, it's connecting back to the ring. Mm -hmm. It's connecting back to the idea of demons as the oppressed underclass. Sure. Mm -hmm. And wealth and power being human preserves. Mm -hmm. I like that in the context of what we'll get later. For me, the brothel scene is a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier. Right. It's not that great, mm -hmm. but you can't cut it without taking something really valuable away from the episode. Mm, 
Yeah, and I, I kind don't know. of feel that way about a lot of the stuff here. I think the whole David Nabbit uh, storyline you can cut and then give that space to Gunn. I like David Herman. I like David Nabbit as a character. I like that they finally get a little money. I think that's all great. But this isn't that episode. Sure. No, that's fair. Back in the hideout, Gunn is confronted by his sister about his fondness for the fight. They're interrupted by the return of a patrol who have identified a vampire nest a few blocks away, but were apparently followed back. Gunn rallies the troops, while outside, Angel intimidates Lanny into handing over the pictures of David. Gunn watches Angel vamp out, threaten Lanny, then vanish into the night. We have a lot of night-to-day and day-to-night cuts in mm-hmm. Angel. That's just a thing that happens. Yes. It's part of their storytelling device because certain scenes have to happen at night mm-hmm. and we really like to contrast those with scenes that happen in the morning. Sure. It's mm-hmm. a nice visual style to show the transition from, you know, the mean supernatural world to a more mundane and domestic setting. Mm-hmm. That's something that we've done in Buffy from the very beginning. It is kind of turned up to 11 in this episode. The events in this episode apparently take place over the course of a week. <laughs> we have so many day to night day and night to day transitions. In this instance, Angel finds Lenny, finally, this guy who has gone to ground, this guy who could not be found. Yes. Angel finds him and says, okay, but you'd better come back tomorrow night with those photos or I'll just be really mad. <laughs> Definitely don't go back into hiding, which is where you were right before I found you. <laughs> Some of the pacing and structural stuff associated with the passage of time in this yeah. episode is weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe the weirdest scene because there is no need at all. You have Gun there. Yeah. You have Lanny there. You have Angel there. Why on earth wouldn't you just skip ahead to the second iteration of this meeting? Yeah. And have Lanny have a demon bodyguard with him. Mm-hmm. And just the scene could play out. There you go. Exactly as it and does. And have the pictures that he happens to carry them around with him. If he is using them to blackmail, they're fairly valuable. He may exactly. want them on his person. So, yeah, there's no reason why we can't have that all at once. Except that perhaps we want to cut back so that the next morning David can hand over a generous check, mm-hmm. both for Wesley and Cordelia's work and for their companionship at the party. Cordelia stumbles into a double entendre, but Wesley ushers her out before things can get worse. It's a little bit of business, yeah, but it's nice enough. Yeah, It's a decent scene. I, I love Wesley and Cordelia. I like Wesley and Cordelia too. I they tend to like natter around in the background, being jokey and inconsequential in some of these episodes, <laughs> and and that is never my favorite iteration. Like I love Wesley and Cordy from The Ring. I like it where they're working together and they're making things happen, you know. And this is more of this kind of background treading water, joke, 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 joke. Let's move. You know, they have chemistry though, and I think no, that I mean, serves them great. pretty well. And I like I like David Nabbit, but again, it's it's inconsequential as far as the storyline right. goes. And it's certainly not worth breaking up the events in the alley with a whole another day, day right. passing by. Mm-hmm. Because we cut from there to another night shot in the alley. Lenny shows up with the photographs and with a friend who proceeds to beat on Angel. They fight. Angel grabs the photographs, then finally snaps the demon's neck, which is a surprisingly visceral yeah. piece mm-hmm. of violence for mm-hmm. this show. Lanny runs off, and Angel takes a moment to catch his breath when he is suddenly impaled with a stake through his chest. Luckily, it missed his heart. Looks like Gunn's gang needs to work on their aim. They channel Angel into a funhouse of death traps. He dodges a falling (laughs) spike trap, fights off one of the gang members, evades crossbow bolts, and finally takes Alana, Gunn's sister, hostage. There is a moment of tension, but then he lets her go. 
Though, when she stumbles into a tripwire and sets off another fun death trap, he catches the bolt with the palm of his hand before it can hit her. It's pretty great. Uh, okay, the fun house of death traps. I yes. love that. I love that. That's exactly what this is. That they shuffle him in there. Yes, Angel, there's this one place to escape. Just run in there. I like it won't that. be a trap. No, it's very cool. And I like how smart it makes these kids that like they use their strengths, which is that they can't fight him physically. They run him into the one place to escape, shuffle him into their little death trap. It's pretty awesome. I they like use it. their strengths. A DVD copy of Home Alone. Exactly. It is a pretty great sequence. Mm -hmm. And I like how attentive we are and committed we are to Angel's character. Mm -hmm. I like we get that moment when he's about to kill the guy who who leaps on his back. You see the rage there that immediately abates. Yes. Then Mm -hmm. he takes Alana hostage, but only for as long as as is necessary to to calm the situation just a little. And then immediately lets her go. A gesture of trust. And then saves her life. I like that. It's good Angel. It is real good Angel. Yeah, Yeah. And the conversation with Gun, the tension that's there Mm -hmm. I think works pretty well oh yeah what do you think of the kind of visual design of the ragtag street gang who are noticeably not wearing any specific colors (laughs) um you know I like that this is a a tight team of fighters you know um I think that the association with the street gang with the poverty stricken of course there are like racial lines along that too I'm not sure there's a white kid in this entire bunch of of people I think there are white kids in that that group but they are even then ethnically diverse because we see black Mm -hmm. kids we see Latino kids there's an Asian kid in there too Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Where you're right in that they are representative of, you know, real life oppressed underclasses mm-hmm. in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, but it's notably not as simple as it's not a mere gang analog. It's not just right. a real world no, gang transposed. It's into much the more complicated than that. And yes. these also are incredibly skilled fighters. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think of them as a team. You know, more than more than a gang because they they are they're smart, they're skilled, they work really well together. Gun is in this position as leader. Everybody turns to him. Yeah. Um, I think it's a nice group, and these are. You know, helpless kids, these are kids that you presume have no family, have no protection, have come together and built themselves up a skilled team of of essentially vampire slayers. And a family. Yeah. No, I I really like this group, you know, and I feel like that association with street gang has that kind of um, kind of marginalizing you know association which for these kids i feel like they deserve better than that like they're smarter they're tougher they're stronger they're more capable than that i think yeah i I mean there's some very complicated kind of social dynamics that Mm -hmm. immediately present themselves when you start talking about gang culture in the real world Mm -hmm. and that's complicated all the more when we start transposing elements of that real life gang culture into angel Mm -hmm. i love and applaud the complexity of it. I love that we don't resolve it down to a simple idea. Mm -hmm. I love that it is going to remain a constant and steady source of pressure for Gun and through its manifestation in our world building, our understanding of Angels Los Angeles, uh, an ongoing pressure for Angel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a really, really interesting kind of stratum of society Mm -hmm. that is going to continue to have a positive and a negative effect on on the stories that we get for for the rest of the run of Angel, Mm -hmm. really. That said, I think you might be right, and and thinking of this in terms of gang culture might simply be a little a little dismissive. Mm-hmm. There does feel as though there's something more here, something tribal, something familial. Yes, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that those things aren't applicable to to real life gang culture or gang culture. Oh, in the I Buffy think there's, there's a huge family element to that sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah, there's a question of emphasis. Put but they're here. protectors. Like they they're, are because you know... what we see early on mm-hmm. is Gunn taking in the the squatters and making right. sure that everyone that is everyone fed. gets fed. There's and no when sense. they steal the food, that's a big deal. Yeah. you know, um, it's it's they're really trying to to do what's right, and they're protecting people and getting mm. not thanked for it because. Nobody realizes what they're doing. The people that they're protecting may not even realize it. Right. And there's no sense of exclusivity. Mm-hmm. It feels as though if you belong, then you belong. Yeah. That this is less about self-identity, about about enforcing or adopting an identity than it is about accepting and, and realizing identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels more Robin Hood than street gang to I me. I think that's absolutely yeah. fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's something constructive rather than destructive about Absolutely. that. There's something, yeah, there's something really interesting and complex at the heart of that idea. And I love that. That is that is a shot in the arm for Angel's world building. Yeah, absolutely. Angel tries to talk with Gunn, though he doesn't say everything that we just said. <laughs> and then they leave with a stern warning to never return. We cut from there to the office where Cordelia is bandaging Angel's wounds while Wesley gets an education in the form of the photographs from the brothel. Angel wants to find out more about the gang and resolves to go after the vampire nest in the area before the kids do. The vampires, meanwhile, get a little pep talk from their leader. And if we're talking about gang culture with Gunn's team, Mm -hmm. here we're seeing the inverse of that, or at least a a dark satire of that. The vamp version of that, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we've we've tackled before the idea of of vamp community and vamp culture we've mm-hmm. seen that peripherally in the buffyverse the one that springs to mind i suppose is sunday's little yeah. nest of vampires back in the freshman at the mm-hmm. beginning of season four we've seen communities form communities that aren't necessarily defined by a single big bad like the master or like spike right. or like angel mm-hmm. himself we've seen instead these little these little cliques, these gangs. Safety in numbers. Form. Exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. And there's a tribal aspect to that too, though we can't ignore here the racist overtones mm-hmm. of the speech, this monologue that he gets. Yeah, like our big evil guy is doing this big evil speech, and I, I think I have it vamp, vamps, blah, 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 yeah. is basically <laughs> what I have in my notes. Um, because we've seen this sort of thing before. They're talking about street trash, they're talking about, you know, and then he pulls out his friend, Ty, who's been in Los Angeles almost as long as I have, mm-hmm. who's, you know, and then he immediately just kills him cold an, and dead. An object lesson, this is Ty yes. is the survivor from the earlier battle. Mm-hmm. It's an object lesson to punctuate his his monologue there's nothing in the monologue that is expressly racist mm-hmm. and yet it kind of is that is though, an isn't unavoidable it? conclusion yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's impossible to listen to that speech without thinking in terms of of ethnic conflict sure. you know in mm-hmm. in big cities particularly of course in real life los mm-hmm. angeles mm-hmm. so here we're seeing again an interesting development an interesting complication an interesting increasing of sophistication when we're looking at our cultural and social discourse about Los Angeles, when we're looking at the world building that accompanies these ideas. It's not as simple as demons are the monsters and humans are are vulnerable victims. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as demons are the oppressed minority. Here we see humans and demons on both sides. And between David's party and the brothel and Gunn's gang and this vampire nest, Mm -hmm. and of course, all of this pivoting around Angel himself, we're seeing every possible take on 
oppression and and victimhood mm-hmm. and power and powerlessness yeah that it's not that simple it's yeah. not as simple as demons bad it's not as simple as demons oppressed it's not as simple as any of that that everything every community every iteration of these um of these kinds of social pressures are all complicated and i like that i like that about angel up to and including the fact that no one at any point raises any kind of moral objection to the demon brothel. Right. No one at any point... To the blackmailing, looks but not the demon sc- brothel. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Even from Cordelia. Even yeah. when Cordelia specifically talks about prostitution at the end of the episode, yes. it's like she's forgotten that there was a demon brothel in this episode. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yet, again, thematically, it's richer because everything is present. Mm-hmm. It's richer because it's complicated. You can't cut either part of that out even though the parts themselves aren't that great Mm -hmm. you can't cut the parts themselves out without losing something from the episode would you agree with that i think you can cut the whole david nabbit thing i think you can cut <laughs> that whole thing you yeah are i'm a fan i am of cutting no i am all for that all you need at the beginning of this is cordelia gets a vision of these kids who are fighting this fight on their own angel tries to help them they don't want him because he's a vampire boom rest of the thing with gun that's fine Gun, meanwhile, <laughs> is talking about Angel, wondering what he could possibly want, while Angel, at that very moment, is in the vampire lair, neatly dodging an aerial assault from Stealth Vampire. Back in the hideout, Alana is distributing some food when Gun's spider sense tingles, and he orders everyone out moments before gas grenades shatter the windows. Outside, in the daylit street, a van pulls up. Figures in heavy clothing grab Alana and drag her inside. Gun leaps onto the back of the van and watches the vampires inside feed on his sister before one of them punches through the window and knocks him back down to the street. It's an effective set piece. Yeah, no, it really is. And I have to say, quite dangerous for vampires to go out and kidnap a girl during the daytime. <laughs> that is a master level yeah. plot, isn't it? Well, they're all covered in these, you know, in these big balaclavas, this whole thing. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really effective. And taking mm-hmm. Alana, as much as Alana has been barely a character up to this point, she's yeah. been nothing but a sounding board for a gun. Well, she's she's there to she's almost like well she's essentially refrigerated. I mean, this is this is who she's there to motivate Gun. She is the female character that exists solely to provide motivation for our male hero. Yes, except that his motivation is already in place. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I agree with that because yeah. it's not as though he was passive before she was fridged. Yeah, I feel as though this is it is torment and but it is torture. It's personal. Like it this is, is certainly where it made gets personal, personal by this. Yeah. That's absolutely mm-hmm. true. The problem, I guess, one of the criticisms you could level at this episode, one of the criticisms I would level at this episode, is that I don't give a damn about Alana mm-hmm. until she turns. At which point, I think she gets spectacular. I think the, the no, last and scene that we get conflict, with her even though we've seen great. that conflict before, is is fantastically realized in that moment. But when she's taken, I only care about her to the modest extent that I care about her because Gun does. Because of Gun, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wesley and Cordelia, meanwhile, pull up in an alley downtown, trying to track the gang hideout. Here, another completely disposable scene. Yeah. There's nothing in this scene that accomplishes anything. Cordy except has her, yeah. We get this great line from Cordelia where she says, Reality is a choice, Wesley. You see what you want to see, and I see what I want to see. Mm-hmm. Which is the encapsulation of the theme of the entire episode. Because it's all about different perspectives on Los Angeles, different experiences, different levels of mm-hmm. truth, different layers of reality. The reason that the rich people can coexist four blocks away from, you know, mm-hmm. this vampire nest and this this warren of, of street kids. 
the reason that these two things can coexist in what is a fairly contained space is that you choose what you want to see. I think in an episode where that theme had been executed effectively, it might work better for me. But as it is, it's just Cordy being goofy in a... To me, this scene is just Cordy being goofy and pretending that it's, you know, they're they're by the beach when actually they're in an really? alley. Yeah. You don't see the applicability from this scene? I see it. I don't think it's effective. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Angel forces a kid to invite him into the hideout. And I wanted to linger on this point a moment because we've been talking recently about the evolution in the invitation rules. Yeah. Angel mm -hmm. recently showed up in Sunnydale. Mm-hmm. He had to be invited into Buffy's dorm room. And we speculated at the time, well, other vampires haven't had to be invited in mm -hmm. to Buffy's dorm room. So does that mean that this has become home? Was Angel just observing the niceties of it? Mm -hmm. But here we get two very interesting ideas. This is not a house. This is clearly a shared space where these kids live. Yeah, it's an abandoned warehouse of some sort, sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And if dorm rooms and hotels are public spaces, surely this this building that isn't even intended to be a house would count as a public space, particularly when you have all of these kids living A building in, in which these kids are squatters. Yeah. Exactly mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. So why does Angel need to be invited in? Because it is home. Mm -hmm. There's so much that we're seeing through the rules of invitation yeah. about what makes a place home, what makes a place yours. I, I love that stuff. And we also get the complication that eh, a vampire can totally just grab you and force you to invite them in. Right. Apparently that's a thing. Is there not something about the invitation needing to be freely given? Is that not something that we touch on back in, I don't know, season two in Buffy? Do we? I honestly don't remember. I'm sure there is someone out there who remembers. <laughs> I don't. If yeah. If we ever have addressed that. But you would well, think that would be a, a useful Well, because people are tricked into part. it. People are tricked into it when they don't realize that the vampire is a vampire. Sure. You know, so they don't always know exactly what they're doing. So, yeah, I'm not sure that the rules are that strict. But I'm sure. fascinated by the rules. And I'm fascinated yeah. by the way the rules can be turned into actual narrative devices. Mm -hmm. The fact that Angel has to coerce this kid into inviting him yeah. into this hideout, into this sanctuary, tells us that this place is home mm -hmm. as eloquently as, as any piece of, of set dressing, any piece of dialogue, yeah. anything that you could do in the episode. I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's good. Angel tells Gunn that a lot of people are going to die if he tries to take out the nest. Gunn isn't interested in the help, though. He exposes Angel to sunlight and then forces him into a meat locker, slamming the door closed and leading his troops out to war. Sometime later, and again, long enough for it to once more get dark, <laughs> Gunn and the others pull up outside the nest. Gunn goes in by himself because... Well, it isn't called Gun's Team, the exactly. TV show. <laughs> Inside, he hears Alana humming and calls out to her. She, of course, isn't the girl she used to be. She got the Million Dollar Man upgrade package, which she demonstrates by knocking him across the room. And as unimpressed as I was by Alana throughout the episode up to this point, yeah. this is fantastic. No, this is absolutely... And I love this moment, too, where the second he sees her, before she's vamped, before she shows her power... He knows. You can see the look oh, on his yeah. face. And it's so beautifully expressed. This whole scene. I, I wish we didn't intercut it. I wish we had that scene in one big chunk because I think it's much, much more powerful there. Um, but yeah, it's it's just beautiful. We do at least get the part that matters. But, yeah. Fairly uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. That's a good, I don't know, 30 or 40 seconds. Yeah. Um, 
without without cutting back to the angel story, sure. right? Because the angel is this is not really necessary. Angel yeah. is trying to break out of the meat locker at this point. We cut back to Alana taunting Gunn, proving that he can't kill her. She's just magnetic mm-hmm. in that performance. Yeah. In every way that she is nothing terribly special mm-hmm. in the first half of the episode, she comes to life in this sequence. Well, I think it's this a great is performance. where she's written well. Yeah. This is where she's written with uh, with an interest in, in, in who she is as a character. Yeah. You know, up but until again, then, she was just an it, extension of Gunn. I would argue again that if she hadn't been so milk toast in the first half of the yeah. episode, the first two thirds of the episode, mm-hmm. the revelation wouldn't be as powerful as it is now. Yeah. And I think that we can almost see a real temptation for Gunn. Mm-hmm. We can almost see the end of suffering, the end of pain, yeah. the end of hunger and cold. And since she was she the thing so, he was protecting. Right. Yeah. It's already done. Yeah. And they can be together forever. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most genuinely tempting yeah. vampire temptation scenes mm-hmm. that we're going to see in Buffy. Yeah. Of course, he's stronger than that. But if she had been better in the opening two thirds of, mm-hmm. of the episode, this would have been less effective. This is mm-hmm. another example. What was there wasn't necessarily great, but I don't think you can cut it. I don't think you can change it without that having having real consequence. Yeah, I don't know. This, for me, throughout, is a classic example of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of, of ramshackle material in this episode, mm-hmm. a lot of rough edges. But for me, it definitely comes together in a number of interesting and unexpected oh, ways. Oh, this is, this is absolutely the moment when this episode is um, kind of, this is when I love this episode. Sure, which this is, is the why mm-hmm. this is the moment when we cut back to Angel <laughs> in oh, the meat locker. Cordelia and Wesley, in the nick of time, let Angel out of the locker. He's the boss. He doesn't need a lecture about using cell phones from a Wesley who's Accent slips in the first line and is then <laughs> ADR'd in the second. Alexis Denisov is so good yeah. at the Wesley voice mm-hmm. that I forget that's not his real voice. Yeah, mm-hmm. And when he slips, which he does so infrequently, it is really jarring and disquieting. It's funny because I didn't even notice it. It's I don't know. I'm just attuned to it, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But he opens the thing. Didn't you call us on your phone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then because the second line is ADR'd, yeah. I feel like he was just having a you bad day. You presume it's just a, just a day he couldn't get the, couldn't the get a accent handle on down. The Wesley yeah. voice there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a decent enough scene. You're right, we're back to Andy Rooney's cell phone time. Oh, God. No, yeah. in Angel's defense, he was inside a metal-lined meat locker. Which is the excuse for not using the cell phone, not this, yes, this Andy Rooney rant about how they requ- just don't work and they're not sure. reliable. Yeah. <laughs> but that would have required Angel to know about Faraday cages. And while Angel is an educated man, I'm not sure. That's not quite his area of expertise. I, I, I sure. think wireless telecommunications, not Angel's thing. <laughs> <laughs> Not really his his object of study there. It's funny enough though, and David Boreanaz is genuinely great in that moment. He is no, he's. I'm great. the boss. I decide when we use cell phones. It's pretty good, and it it's close enough to shaken angel. Yeah, that it works for me. I I don't like it intercutting this incredibly powerful yes. moment with Gun so that Angel can Andy Rooney. If it was anything else. <laughs> You know, it would be all right. I wouldn't really, you know, bother me that much. But because we have this incredibly important moment with Gunn, I don't mind the commercial break after she kicks him into the wall because I think that's a powerful moment to go mm-hmm. into commercial break. But, you know, 
the whole Andy Rooney and then Wesley and Cordy again there's this goofiness there's this hey you should use your cell phone isn't the cell phone joke funny no it's really not <laughs> it wasn't funny the first couple of times so I don't know like this is such an important moment right yeah but we didn't take Angel out of the episode so that we could do the cell phone joke. We took him out of the episode so that Gunn could do his thing. So that Gunn could have his moment, which is great. I mean, all we have to do is see Angel busting out on his own and right. don't make any, and then just have him but and then go back to Gunn. This is the moment. And this has been true throughout the episode to a certain degree, but this is the moment as we approach the climax that we're reminded, oh yeah, a story can only have one protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> and right now, this is Gunn's story. And it's about to be Angel's story again, yeah. and that'll be fine. But we have to remove Angel from the plot so that Gunn can have his moment. Which is totally fine. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just cutting away from this really emotionally tight moment to have Andy Rooney. You could have done something. Yeah. It, it yeah. Just as tight as possible. They should have just cut to Angel getting out and then that's it. You know, Gunn and his sister reminisce about old times and she tries to convince him that vampirism is the cure for what ails him. But when she leans in to feed, he says goodbye and stakes her. It's a powerful moment, particularly with our new upgraded staking special effect. Sure. Which mm-hmm. looks really very which good. Which gives us the everything dust. We see the, the skull and bones mm. for just a second and then it all goes. I like that. And there are a lot of dusting effects in this episode. Yeah. This couldn't have been a cheap episode to no. produce. Mm-hmm. I think the number that I saw quoted is $5,000. Wow. $5,000 in the year 2000. Per dusting $5, effect? $5,000 per dusting effect. Wow. Yeah. All which right. doesn't take into account, you know, extra time and money spent on framing and lighting shots so sure, that you, sure. can, you can insert the dusting mm-hmm. effect. But That's just the... Not cheap. Yeah. Not cheap at all. Angel watches from the shadows just as the rest of the gang break through and arrive. The vampires reveal themselves, but Angel can negotiate a truce. This is his town. The gang is under his protection. He even gives his name as Angelus as he stakes the vamp leader. The others leave peaceably enough, and Gunn leads the kids back out without further bloodshed. The next day, Cordelia and Wesley talk a little about social inequality and the possibility of prostituting oneself out to David in exchange for vast wealth. And let's not forget that this is an opportunity for Wesley to Andy Rooney about the fancy coffee with the whipped cream. What is up with that? Uh, that's not Andy Rooneying. That's, that's being Seinfelding. British. <laughs> 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 You're right. Uh, again, not really you know, a waste of time because it is so fast, because it yeah. is so innocent. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a thing that happened. It's a little bit of business mm-hmm. that just, you know, keeps us moving forward. I didn't hate the coffee, but it's not like Wesley's new to the United States. It's not like this is his first cup of coffee in Los Angeles. Yeah. And it's also like, I don't know. It's just this, look at these cell phones and how they don't work. Look at this coffee. It has whipped cream in it. I don't understand this. Like possibly, okay, possibly in the year 2000, those jokes were more relevant. They're so flat now. It feels so early Seinfeld to me. And I just, I I don't have patience for it. How much patience do you have for Cordelia embracing the possibility of prostitution as a career move? Okay. This if we had seen Cordelia be somewhat less enchanted in the opening scene with the party, and if this had been a theme that had been drawn through the whole episode, or I could have appreciated that a little bit more. If Cordelia had gone to the brothel, yeah, if she'd actually been forced to confront the reality of prostitution, the reality in this instance of demonic prostitution, the right. idea that these demons are culturally, are, are structurally disenfranchised and mm-hmm. are therefore 
no matter what the arrangement may be at the brothel, are therefore being exploited. Well, but the thing is, we though, could have done a little more with it. Prostitution is a very complicated thing too, because not, there is such a thing as empowered prostitution. It doesn't happen dealing, a lot. No, not when you're dealing with demons. <laughs> yeah. Because well, I don't demons, know. Lena seemed pretty empowered to me. <laughs> demons can't be empowered within the fabric of of society in the angelverse. Mm-hmm. Demons are always an underclass. Yeah. And that means that, particularly when the madam of the brothel at least appears to be human. human we have no reason sure. to believe that she isn't human, which just is another, is another little tightening of the screw there. Yeah. And I like that that's... I like that that's ugly, and I mm-hmm. like that it's dirty, and I like that it's complicated, and I like that it's not resolved. Mm-hmm. We need Los Angeles to feel like this yeah. if Angel as a show is going to really work. Mm-hmm. Another day has passed. Another night has fallen. By the time Angel catches up with Gunn looking out at the city, Angel skips the lecture. But when Gunn asks him why he does what he does, he asks, what else is he supposed to do? I said earlier that... This is an episode with a really tight grip on who Angel is. Mm -hmm. Fleeting jokes aside, the couple of times that we break characters so that he can deliver a joke aside, this is a script that really understands Angel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's never more evident than it is in this moment, because this is the existentialist argument. Yes. This This is the foundation stone of Angel's entire personality and worldview and mission. Mm -hmm. This is why he does what he does. What are you going to do? Are you going to not fight? Are you going to not try and make things better that is as close to a thesis statement for angel the show as we've gotten so far and and i just adore that moment i love that it's not a lecture Mm -hmm. i love that it's not simple again we're preserving the complexity in this interaction and I love that. I love Angel's parting line. You know? Yeah, I'll be around. I don't need the help. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. No, and it's really nice. And Gunn even calls that out because he's yeah. like, "Are you going to give me that daddy lecture?" And let's you know, not forget that, like you know, or David Boreanaz is like four years older than than Gunn. Although in in the fiction, no, two hundred and fifty years older, but still. yeah, but that's not what we're calling out because we also <laughs> right. skipped over it in in the breakdown. Mm-hmm. But we have that line where Gunn refers to Angel as a middle class white guy. Who's that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he presents those facts in order of power, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. You are middle class, you are white, you are male, and you're also an undead monster. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, you've got everything working for exactly. you. <laughs> and I think that the episode manages to, manages to negotiate what is a very fraught and complex space with a great deal of sensitivity, mm-hmm. but also a great deal of integrity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not an episode that can be accused of, of I don't know, pandering or, or, you know, accusations of political correctness or anything like that. Sure, sure. Because this is an episode that absolutely has a perspective mm-hmm. and absolutely intends to share that perspective. I think that that stuff is pretty categorically successful no i think it's really good i like this ending moment especially because we have gun staring out at the skyline much the way that we see angel do in a lot of these episodes Mm. he ends by looking at the skyline at night and kind of pondering his existence and here we have gun who still has these other you know kids in his team to protect but the person who he was there to do this for is gone so why is he gonna fight why does he want to keep fighting? It's a question that he's asking himself right at the beginning of this fight. An angel who has been in this fight for a really long time is just, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of, sort of really is kind of like yeah. the dad figure, the future figure for Gunn. Well, this is who Gunn's going to be. question mm-hmm. that's come up through the episode. Alana was challenging Gunn on mm-hmm. why is he doing this? Why right. is he provoking them? Why is he taking risks? Yeah. There's a really interesting 
a really interesting study to be made mm-hmm. of, you know, why we fight and the consequences. Well, and her accusation with Gunn is is different. I think it Gunn likes it. It's exciting. It's a thrill for him well, on a certain level. That's or at the least accusation, that's the, the accusation, right. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how consistent that is through the episode. Mm-hmm. Certainly, that's the gun that we get in the cold open. Yeah. That's definitely, you know, mm-hmm. standing there like Blade with his sword all, sure. you know, just mm-hmm. ready to go. Sure. I can buy that that gun mm-hmm. enjoys the fight. I'm not sure that we see that in the rest of the episode. And, yeah. and it's okay that this guy can be conflicted, that he can be too Complicated things. that there's layers there, sure. yeah. And that's what I really like about gun. I think we've kind of had every discussion we were going to have as we yeah. moved through the episode, to mm-hmm. be honest. I'm not sure there's anything we haven't. there's anything left. Yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts you would like to offer? No, I haven't really left anything on the table. I still feel <laughs> like, I feel like you, you bring up a lot of good points as far as these, this juxta- juxtaposition of these two separate class experiences of demon culture, you well, know, of, demon at reality. Least two. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we have these, these different sides of that. I feel like that had that been more effectively told, I could defend the David Nabbitt side of the story um but i feel like we just we use that just to launch us into gun's territory and then that's it it becomes gun's story and gun's story is so much more powerful so much more interesting i would have rather had more time with that and have angel's role be i'm here to you know to come in and help you i would much rather have cut gun's story just a little Mm -hmm. and actually continued the 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 contrasting storyline through the rest of the that, episode that yeah thematic because story. the gun story by itself is a little thin and it's not something that we haven't seen before it's not mm-hmm. a new story for the buffy verse we've kind of dealt with this we knew where it was going yeah i'd rather develop that more because i'm just more interested in that side of the story than the i'm David just not Nabbit sure there's side. that much more there i think that a slightly mm-hmm. simpler version of that with a slightly stronger contrast mm-hmm. would have given us something that is more important but that's exactly the word that I would use to describe this episode. Yeah. Weirdly, this is a really important episode of yeah. Angel. Mm-hmm. Not just for Gun, though certainly for Gun. Mm-hmm. This is the best vision we've had of LA by far. This mm-hmm. is the best vision we've had of the Angel side of the Buffyverse. We've talked constantly through the season about how Angel isn't the same show right. as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. How Angel's world and experience and approach is different than Buffy's. Mm-hmm. They're in different worlds, yeah. separated by 45 miles of coastline, or however much they're supposed to be, between mm-hmm. Los Angeles and Sunnydale. This is the first time that the angel side of the Buffyverse has felt real and complete and, and living up to its fullest potential. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen versions of this. We've tried different formulae through the course of the season to make this work. The the demons are terrifying and the humans are oppressed. Okay, no, 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 wait. There's a there is an oppressed demon subclass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also the demons are terrible. No, 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 wait. The demons are the oppressed subclass, but humans are terrible. Ah, you see what I did there? Mm-hmm. No, 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 wait. Everyone is terrible. Everyone is terrible. And Everyone that is, is terrible. That is exactly what Angel is. One good man in a world that is essentially corrupt no matter whether you're human or demon. But we've arrived at what is perhaps the the most noir element mm-hmm. that we've had from Angel to date, which is power. Mm-hmm. Power is what corrupts. Except David's stance is a really interesting counterpoint even to that. So mm-hmm. even in our broadest generalizations, we're yeah. not really allowed to rest. We're not allowed to be comfortable. David is presented as a good guy who also exploits demon women for sex. Yeah. That's really uncomfortable. It is really uncomfortable. And... 
I, you know, and I like that it's uncomfortable. I like that these edges are kind of raw and that nothing is defined in a box, yeah. you know? Um, we've gone through this really interesting spectrum of who's good and who's not, and who's evil and who's not. And the fact that it isn't that simple, I really like that. And I think that's what Angel has to recommend it is that the the world in angel is just not that simple and it's never going to be that simple that said you do kind of have to look for that because the actual movement of the plot mm-hmm. just in terms of of the progression of events through the episode yeah not that impressive just not that substantial mm-hmm. there's there's nothing much in this episode that we haven't seen before mm-hmm. at least variations of yeah. before so for all that it takes us to a really interesting place, for all that there's a ton of thematic stuff that I find completely fascinating, for all that this is a really well-written mm-hmm. episode, there's just not a lot of there there. I'm surprised that we've run for an hour, honestly, I talking know. about Warzone. <laughs> Let's put it on the list. Where would you put this on the big list of every Angel episode ever here as we begin the descent into the final movement of the first season? I know. I actually like this episode quite a bit, even with the weaknesses, even with the stuff about it that I don't like. I love Gun. I love the way that they pull that story together and really make it meaningful. Yes, it's something we've seen before, but I think this is the best iteration of that story that we've seen mm-hmm. so far. Um, oh, well, except for the end of Buffy season two where she kills Angel. But anyway, um, <laughs> you always kill the ones you love, I gotta tell you. Uh, but I think that it's it's fairly well written. Um, what is good, what's there that is good is really pretty good, and it is an important episode. Um, so I have it uh, at number five on our list, right after In the Dark and just above hero yeah yeah i think the two places it could mm-hmm. go are, are there or one spot lower or one right spot lower under yeah. hero, right above the ring i could go the either ring, way for mm-hmm. me is the point of comparison because this episode takes so much of the class conflict mm-hmm. power dynamic mm-hmm. you know issue of exploitation that the ring addressed mm-hmm. you know in passing yeah and really makes good on that. There's, mm-hmm. there's just so much more here. It feels so much more mature and accomplished and sophisticated than the ring. So for me, that's our our bottom threshold. I can't really see it going higher than in the dark because of, no. of substance issues. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. just not enough here to propel it into mm-hmm. the top tier of, yeah. of Angel episodes. I'm actually happy for it to go, uh, you're saying above Hero. I could go either way. I could be argued either way. I don't feel terribly <laughs> strongly. Ah, see, it's a strange position because I like it more than I like Hero. Yeah. But I'm not sure that it's as good as Hero. Yeah. That's kind of where I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Let's go ahead and put it above Hero. Who's arbitrating let's, this let's, list? Let's if be not wild. Us. Let's just have a crazy day <laughs> where we don't torture ourselves over that one little spot. It goes in above right. Hero, number five on the list. That is Warzone. And that's it for our show. We'll be back on Thursday to look at the next episode of Angel, Blind Date. That's episode 21 of the first season of Angel. Then next week, Restless on Monday to Shanshu in LA on Thursday. A lot of fun discussion ahead. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back on Thursday with more. Until then, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted. Dusted.